0: Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe. It's Friday, so that means it's time to assemble the weekly news panel. Let's welcome in today's panelists, Elizabeth Moeller and Michelle McQuig. Hello, Elizabeth. Thank you for staying on and pinch-hitting for Juwita Gupta today.
1: You're welcome. Happy to be here.
0: And Michelle, hello. How are you doing today?
1: Hello. So much fun to be here with two new people today.
0: Yay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Welcome. <laughs> so, yeah. So let's dive right into this. So we start the panel on the international front. Uh, the, this week, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau attended the APEC Summit in San Francisco. There were a number of meetings planned with different leaders and dignitaries, and Karen Rebo highlighted his busy schedule.
2: Trudeau kicked off his California visit with a pre summit meeting with his friend and fellow liberal lawmaker, Governor Gavin Newsom. He said they had lots to talk about. On
3: climate, on growing our economy, on increasing trade, on uh, helping our citizens with
2: affordability. Today, Trudeau will sit down for one on one meetings with a coterie of fellow Pacific Rim leaders in between high level APEC plenary sessions. U.S. President Joe Biden rattled off a list of the challenges during the reception he hosted last night. Those include Include how to reinforce and streamline modern-day supply chains while finding workable solutions to the climate crisis. Karen Rebo, The Canadian Press.
0: And with Trudeau attending the summit, Canada's place on the global stage has been tested over the last few years with the tensions between China and India, and even to an extension of this week with Canada's response to Israel and the Gaza conflict. But Also here at home, new polling data suggests Canadians are ready for a change in leadership. And Karen Rebo has the details on this poll.
2: Trudeau's Liberals have just passed the 8th anniversary of their first election win in 2015, but a leger poll of over 1,600 Canadians done last weekend for the Canadian press suggests widespread dissatisfaction with the Liberal government on everything from housing affordability and inflation to health care, government spending and climate change. While affordability, housing and public debt are higher on the reasons people want Trudeau to go, one in five people surveyed said they want him to resign simply because they're just tired of him. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press.
0: So there's a lot to unpack here, and and Canada's had numerous challenges developing strong relationships in the Asian uh, region, especially with trade partners. So, Michelle, I'll start with you on this. How do you see Canada's position within that region?
1: Yeah, this is not an area where Canada has historically had a ton of influence, from what I understand. I, I'm going to defer to those who are much more steeped in this kind of history than I am. But definitely, it's been an area where this government has wanted to put some focus and has had some struggles. Uh, you might remember Trudeau's initial trip to India back in, I want to say, 2018 or 19, somewhere around there, the one that became a bit of a global laughing stock, mm-hmm. if that helps narrow it down. Um, so that it, it I wouldn't want to say it stemmed from that or it started there. There are so many complexities that I don't feel as well-versed on, but there's been trouble with Canada's perception and Trudeau's perception specifically in that region dating back for sure to then, if not sooner. Lately, now we've seen extreme strain on Canada's relationships with both China and India, and that is not uh, <laughs> that's a, that poses big challenges for that region because those are, of course, the two biggest economies, not only a region, but some of the biggest in the world. And I think as a result, or again, I I hesitate to correlate too much with any of this stuff. So I don't want to say as a result, let's let's have that caveat stand for for this whole section. (laughs) Anything I say here, (laughs) but um, the fact is that this is an area where Canada does not currently have a great deal of influence. Um, my understanding is, is historically not. So no one, for instance, looks to Canada to be the peacemaker in the middle East. That, that dubious distinction falls to the United States generally, but uh, for sure, this is an area where Canada has wanted to expand its influence. They rolled out this big Asia Pacific, Asia, excuse me, Asia, Asia Pacific strategy last year. Um, that was all aimed at mitigating China's influence and, uh early days to see how that's going but there's also been efforts to try and put together like an Indo-Pacific strategy that hasn't come together uh there are a lot of question marks about Canada's place in the global uh on the global stage Uh, from the UN where we have failed to you know land some security council positions that we vied for uh there's questions swirling for sure as to whether Canada is the global player it could be
0: well, and and you laid out some really great points there, and and obviously the the distinction needs to be made. The situation with China's tension with uh, uh, with Canada, and then Canada's uh, issues with India, are completely separate and have are oh, yes. are there for very different reasons. That said, I would also uh, kind of reflect the point that you know at least domestically on the political front and the federal front. You know the parties seem pretty aligned with the response that uh, the Liberal government has had when it comes to dealing with foreign uh, interference, or at least pushing, if not what the Liberal response has been pushing for more. And then the same thing with uh, Canada's response to to India in in the wake of the uh, the the killing of a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil. So I, I think there's even if there was uh, opposed to. Trudeau and the Liberals uh, kind of maintaining that hold in that file, it it would probably be at least along similar lines, if not even uh, more harsh lines of reaction to both China and India in those cases. Elizabeth, I want to give you the opportunity to weigh in here. What do you view as Canada's place within this region and the strength that they have in the region?
3: yeah i think it's one that we really need to continue to bolster i mean if we just think for a moment about china in terms of what we get from china trade-wise so our our microchips for our computers that's a huge thing but also uh as as an importer uh the things that that you know china gets from us so uh you know of oil of uh, alpha alpha um you know coal um you know gasoline uh grain all of those things are really key right it's a, it's a huge sort of um trade opportunity so we we can't afford to lose that opportunity um so we want to continue to think about ways that we can can continue to build those relationships perhaps through agreements um that, that both canada and china uphold but you know when i think about you know perhaps in the next 20 years like china's economy is going to really continue to grow um, so it would be, I think, a missed opportunity if if we, you know, didn't continue to leverage those relationships um, because of all of the things that we do export and all of the things that we get from China that are that, you know, we require here um, to sustain our
1: economy.
0: And uh, that's a very good point, too. Oh, Michelle, you want to jump in there?
1: Yeah, I just wanted to say, just to mm-hmm. highlight the why why it's complex and the I, I believe Elizabeth, you're totally right that Canada wants, it recognizes the opportunity that exists, and wants to make the most of it. But it's very tricky because for one thing, it takes two to tango, and those yeah. governments in both cases are not necessarily receptive to Canadian overtures mm-hmm. at the moment because of pre existing tensions that we don't have time to chronicle yeah. here. <laughs> but the other factor too is is even politically, it can be very challenging. There. Canada mm-hmm. has faced a lot of pushback from the opposition about being too cozy with China, Mm -hmm. despite all the recent tensions. And the fact is that both, uh, in in a number of these emerging economies, there are lots of concerns around human rights and other issues that Mm -hmm. the Canadian regime cannot be seen to uphold or sanction. So that Mm -hmm. gets really hard. And that's why I think it's, it's... it's such a balancing act for for the trudeau government or frankly for anyone in government to try and, and find the best middle ground for any of these relationships.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and, and building on that, I I'm, I'm curious what are your thoughts on the idea that is there a path forward for this trudeau government to be able to improve relations in the region and really have a a lowering of the tensions with these these emerging powers like hey, China, India and some of the other Asian Pacific partners, or is a change in government, in in leadership needed for a a clean slate to kind of begin to normalize uh, relations? Michelle, I'll start with you on this. Uh,
1: It's so hard to say because it With the bulk of these issues, so much of the real action happens behind closed doors. Uh, Mm -hmm. The real person carrying the file on this would be Melanie Jolie. She's the Foreign Affairs Minister. Uh, By all accounts, people seem relatively pleased with her performance. But uh, in the case of India, we talked about this on the panel some weeks ago in case you caught it, uh, but there was... We were all a little stymied as to how Canada sees its way out of this one, given the fact that Canada was the one that stood up and, and made the accusation of foreign interference with regard to the extrajudicial killing of a Canadian citizen. Uh, so that one's going to be difficult to, to, to simmer down, I think. In China's case, uh, we recently, as in two days ago, saw Xi Jinping sit down with President Joe Biden. That would have been inconceivable a couple of years ago. So I'm going to land on never say never with that one.
0: Elizabeth, what about you? Do you you see a path forward with this current uh, government and administration to really stabilize relations within the region?
3: Yeah, I, th- I think you know, to sort of, just echo what Michelle says. I, th- I think the Liberals certainly are are in trouble. You know, they've they've been in power for for eight years now, quite a long time, and there's been some some scars earned in that time. So I think it's yeah, it's definitely going to you know require a lot of sort of uh, diplomacy and and work from from diplomats to figure out like how are we going to move forward and and you know build some kind of um, Meaningful relationship for for both parties, and you're right. I think you know we have to be careful because this the the state that is is also um, in there now and and having those conversations.
0: Uh, and and let's let's expand down. Let's take kind of a a bit of a, a view overall of the Trudeau government on the international stage. As of today, what is the lasting legacy of the Trudeau government? As we heard in the sound clip, eight years now. Ian, the, on the international front, uh, Michelle, what do you think the overall legacy of this government and administration has been?
1: Uh, I don't think it's going to be one of the highlights, uh, the highlight reels, when looking back on this administration. The, the, you know, there have been lots of great photo ops, lots of good glad handing a really strong relationship with the United States out of the gate when Barack Obama was still in power. Even when Donald Trump took over, the the one very notable success I will say was would be the U, the new U.S. Mexico Canada Trade Agreement. Uh, that that was a bit of a coup to land that. But otherwise, uh, there are a lot of blots on on Canada's legacy in in, in this past few years. Uh, with no need to rehash it, we've just basically done that. But uh, I don't think foreign affairs is an area where this government has particularly shone.
0: Yeah, from in in my mind, I feel like. Um, since uh, Trudeau's come in as a prime minister, and, and we've laid it out already, seems to be a shrinking of Canada's influence on the international stage. We we no longer are on that security council. We, Our relationships with inter- big international uh, partners has really been frayed or shrunk or has shifted to the way that, you know— Pre, uh, Pre-Trudeau Ascending Power, we were in a pretty good position and, and people did look to Canada in some way, shape or form, maybe not directly to lead these discussions, but to be a part of it where now sometimes even at the APAC summit, there was questions where is Canada even going to be involved in some of these side uh, conversations that take mm-hmm. place behind the scenes, mm-hmm. behind the closed doors? Elizabeth. One thing worth noting, though, really quickly, though,
1: I opened I'm the one who opened up the security council can of worms. And it's worth noting that the first refusal to include Canada there was pre Trudeau in 2010 under Stephen Harper. So that not everything can be laid
0: at Trudeau's feet. Fair enough. Fair (laughs) enough. Thank you for for that very important distinction and and point. Uh, Elizabeth, any thoughts on this?
3: yeah I think I think you know we've we've got some work too. I think historically, Canada has been seen on the international stage as sort of really championing immigration and climate change. But I think you know, as we've laid out, there's there's a pretty um steep curve, a steep path ahead, um, given some of the things that we've already we've already talked about. I think we have sort of have to redeem ourselves is I mm-hmm. guess what I'm saying.
0: And okay, so let's let's now look back within our borders domestically. Uh, as I also played at the top of this segment, there was those new polling numbers that really showed an unfavorable view on this Liberal government. I, I will add the context that it seems that pretty much any uh, leader in power right now is kind of gaining negative poll numbers or unfavorable poll numbers. But I think the fact that literally 50% of respondents say they, they want to see someone else in in power or in leadership before the next election— Do you see uh, the the liberal government as of now uh, being able to hold on to power during the next election? Or is now the right time to maybe explore the next leadership candidate for the following uh, election? And uh, I'll, I'll start with Michelle on this.
1: Sure. Uh well I, I, I would not be putting a lot of money on the liberals getting <laughs> reelected next time around yeah. personally. Um it's funny you asked Alex about the the, the path to, to better experiences globally. Mm-hmm. And for me, I, I see less of a path at home uh than than Extra, then in, in international relations, in terms of Trudeau's performance and popularity, I I really don't see this one turning around. First of all, it's really not that unusual to have this kind of degree of, of discontent at this stage of the game. Eight years is a long time. Yep. If the um, agreement between the NDP and the Liberals hold, we're not going to be going to the polls for another year and change. Sometime in twenty twenty five is what that that agreement is meant to hold on till. So and adding to all of this are the the issues that specifically are being laid on the liberals mm-hmm. in affordability, housing, healthcare, so many things some of which uh, there may be more merit to than others but the fact is that big everyday issues that hit Canadians directly where they live are dragging this government's polling numbers down. And right or wrong, there's a perception that this government has failed on those files. Those are big, big, big failures. You have a, a surging opposition leader who's been gaining a lot of traction and is being very successful at getting himself and his party well established. Um, there are a lot of wins that are not at the Liberals' backs right now, and I don't see those shifting around any time to be at their backs before the next election.
0: All very good points, and as we've highlighted on this panel before, a lot of the criticism, especially as you laid out housing, healthcare, all that... That's typically on the provincial side, but for whatever reason the the conversation has has been focused on the federal side and specifically this liberal government. Elizabeth, I'm
1: gonna Climate Change is a huge one too, I should mention. And that one is a pretty federal file. So
0: absolutely. Elizabeth, I'm gonna give you last word on this topic.
1: Yeah, I think certainly Trudeau,
3: you know, unfortunately has been a little bit of a lightning rod. He's attracted that oppositional lightning, shall we say? And I, I think part of it, for sure, is that is that Canadians are are quite um, discontented. Certainly, there's been a lot of frustration with the carbon tax. Um, will can they change? I think they'd have to radically change in order to, to to garner support in the next election. And I think if they don't do so soon, then you know they they might um, lose their power, lose their. Uh, certainly, we're seeing that in the, in the West. So. I think, you know, it's going to need a radical change for them to um, to continue in 2025.
0: Absolutely. OK, let's leave the conversation there. Enough of this international talk. Let's look more domestically and at home. So coming up after the break, Ontario announced a number of changes to its labor laws this week. Michelle, Elizabeth and myself consider some of the advantages and disadvantages of such changes. This is the Now News Panel on AMI-TV.